Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time, Jan Bartlett, and I'll be here till six tonight. Today, why bees are dying, we're speaking with Coral Winter, who's a retired research chemist, one of the corporate monsters of the world, Monsanto. Alan Broughton will be telling us a fair bit about that company. He's an organic farmer from Gippsland. Journalist Colin McNaughton's visit to Cuba and Mexico, part two. Environmental issues in Malaysia and Timor-Leste with Asia-Pacific environmental consultant Lee Tan. But first, let's see how Mr Kevin Lee Healy has gone for this week. A week, Jane Listener, when, with a bit of luck, it'll only be a couple of more weeks before this segment will be able to offend and insult as much as we like those who deserve to be offended and insulted without any fear of facing the full force of those undemocratic anti-free speech laws that have shackled the week that was for so long. Once they get rid of this offended insult nonsense, we'll be able to say what we really think. And so will all those responsible politicians like caring business class thinkers George, Christian, man and a woman, family, son, and former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses, and Kevin and Screws the workers, and recently formed his very own party, Corey St. Bernardi, forced out because he couldn't offend an insult. And the usual suspect, Lord Rupert of Wapping Hacks, and the true blue Aussie, dear baby Jesus Lobby, which must have the right to offend and insult with dear baby Jesus compassion and love thy neighbour. Not love in that way, but love those they offend and insult because they love them and all those other lovers of democracy and free speech and they all defended posthumously the recently deceased Lord Rupert, brilliant cartoonist, late great tiny described him. Bill, look, it's it's not racist. And after a panel audience member yelled that, look, it's not racist, was racist, all those dedicated defenders of free speech through Lord Rupert's great true blue Aussie responsible quality journalism broadsheet demanded an apology. Because attacking, look, it's not racist and them is offensive and insulting and shows just how low the long-haired, commie, greedy, wooden work in an iron, black armband lot will go the insulting and offending depths to which they'll sink, and how they have captured the ABC. Well, we know that. Commies like Amanda and Tom and Nikki, long-haired commies, all of them. How much further to the right must the ABC go to prove it isn't left before that lot stop describing it as a branch of the Fourth International? On the energy business, which it is business, what leadership by the jobs and growth get things done caring business class government? As a report claims, the privatised energy companies are gouging us all, ripping us off, and as the government notices, maybe people are a bit upset about soaring energy prices, it takes urgent action, an inquiry into energy prices to report back by, by, uh, let's check that. Scuttle them, Josh, Malcolm, uh, when will it report back? Uh, 20, Josh, have you got the answer? Uh, Yes, uh, 20, uh, Malcolm, 
Um, yes, yes, I've got it here. 20, uh, uh, look, we'll get the exact date for you, but I want to assure True Blue Aussies, it shows this government is taking this matter seriously and acting to assist True Blue Aussie businesses and households, unlike the socialists whose only solution is more renewable nonsense. And hard as it is to believe, the great energy businesses are very upset. There's no need for an inquiry, they tell us. They are not gouging, not ripping off. The fault lies with the government. Just when we thought getting the government out of these things where government has no business to be had delivered us the benefits of competition policy, of private sector efficiency, and therefore the lower prices we were promised and are enjoying, showing yet again how difficult it is for us to us, we lay common folk, to comprehend the greatest little economic order of them all. Now to serious business. As footy season kicks off, have to admit in some contests it's hard to know who to barrack for. Take this difference between the banks and developers over banks worrying about the security of loans for small jerry-built apartments proliferating as they attract investors who wouldn't be seen dead living in them themselves and indeed many are just left vacant. But what a tough choice. Who do we support? Banks or developers? And then there's this aborted match between evil union-smashing lawyer-turned-big-time investor Michael Croker, that's evil unions, by the way, not evil Michael, of course, and former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations Peter Root, the workers, in the Caring Business Class Party State Supremo blockbuster, aborted because Croker's opponent almost did the croak bit. Poor Pete had a minor stroke, they tell us. Pity it wasn't pre-1996 when he rooted the workers. A stroke of bad luck for evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers. But again, imagine sitting in the outer with a Go Croker flag in one hand, uh, root him, root the workers flag in the other, thinking, which flag do I wave? Speaking of Root the Work, as we mentioned recently, Fair Work True Blue Aussie No Longer Work Choices just looks like advice Supremo Graham What's a Fair Wage Son, former Free Kills the Workers a Parachick, had resigned because uh, claiming the con mission was too biased toward workers and poor caring employers were being crucified leading caring employers to declare the con mission needed more independent con missioners like Graham. And the True Blue Aussie capitalist review dredged up one decision over many years, a minor case in which Graham had found for the workers, a true example of independence. And in every other case, obviously, the law was on the poor, crucified, caring employer's side. Well, finally, good news. Just this very morning, Graham has, with his revered independence, provided the solution to unemployment. Wages, they're the problem. Slash wages, problem solved. Sky-high wages don't reflect the real world we live in, he lectured us. And abolish the no-one-can-be-worse-off restrictions. Thankfully, in the real world, the government has made four new appointments to the con mission. All truly independent, caring business class, including a former advisor to the aforementioned Peter Root, the workers. Workers' paradise is nigh. But Lord Rupert et al. wouldn't lie, so nigh li no lies when it comes to the closure of Hazelwood or 
no, Hazel uh, Cole or whatever it's called, which the aforementioned former Big Supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses, says is being closed by the socialist government. No, no, not the Dan pejorative state government. No, no. In a philosophical treatise in the Lord Rupert tabloids, Tiny puts it down to the French socialist government. Thank goodness for Tiny, or we'd never have known. French socialist government putting pressure on the French owners of what the state government used to own. Look, Tiny did all he could to prevent this catastrophe. I scrapped the carbon tax. I reduced the renewable energy target. Reduced the renewable energy target. But despite those steps in the right direction, steps in the right direction, and he certainly stepped in the right direction, the impact of renewables was threatening the national economy by closing haze of coal, and Tiny also said he doesn't call it carbon pollution. Uh, so you don't call carbon pollution carbon pollution, Tiny? No. And he asked, why is it right and proper for China and India to use true blue Aussie coal while we can't? And ignoring the minor fact that we can and do, we may have to support Tiny here. Let's get behind him and ban China and India from using true blue Aussie coal. But, listener, hoping you can explain an element of the greatest little economic order of them all, I have just a bit of trouble understanding. It is important when these places close and that so-called renewable timber responsible caring employer also in Gippsland is another example, important to have a transition program for workers and communities affected. But as these companies walk away with stuffed pockets from exploiting these natural resources for eons, how come it's taken for granted by the great responsible corporates and the media, and often workers and communities, that the public purse must meet the costs of clearing up the corporate mess and its human consequences? How come they suddenly discover the public purse has a role in the greatest little economic order of them all after all? I'm sure there's a simple explanation, but if you could let me know, listener, why don't they blockade with their malicious, monstering timber trucks the timber company office? On that very point, and as Tiny urged we keep the coal fires burning, another giant mind among that lot, no less a very important person as our very own Deputy Big Supremo and Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Big Supremo Barnacle offered his solution to the unsustainable, sustainable timber debate. The company threatening to take the chainsaws to itself unless the public purse pays it a few trillion and makes a few trillion more trees available to chainsaw. And obviously, Barnacle spent hours working on his brilliant solution. Open up lots of protected forests to the chainsaws and change the threatened species status of the Leadbeater's possum to declare it's not threatened. It's timber workers who will become extinct. He made a very strong and sensible contribution. Kill the forests. Kill the possums. Well, what's just another extinction to join all the other post-1788 flora and fauna extinctions? Finally, we can always change our fauna emblem to, say, the loud-mouthed, non-hairy, hayseed and sheepshit congenital idiot. And when that offend and insult law is removed, we'll be able to say what we really think. Good afternoon. I reckon you'll have a ball. That's Mr Kevin Healy and... 
that's his week that was. And if you'd like more of Mr. Kevin Healy on 3CR, the time is 9 o'clock, Wednesday morning for City Limits. On the program last week, we heard from award-winning journalist Colin McNaughton talking about his recent visit to Mexico. Colm also travelled to Cuba, arriving there long after the death of Fidel Castro. We just missed his funeral by about three days. As it, as it went, the big funeral, whatever, went through the whole of Cuba. We turned up just a few days afterwards. And what were you told about that? what that week was like? It's actually interesting, the whole uh, what Fidel means, because when you watch the state media, which was really interesting to watch, they're all singing his praises. But when you talk to people in the streets, there's a lot of animosity and a lot of pissed off people. So it's very interesting just in terms of... Of course, this is only impressionistic because we're only just wandering around as tourists, so we don't really have much of an insight as to what's actually going on and how it works. But you can definitely see tensions and contradictions inside. But we talked to one guy, and I think he was one of the sharper observers, because people were complaining about this and that. He was making the point that these people who might want to go to Miami or wherever, he said, well, they don't actually realise what they've actually got. And they're complaining about what they don't have, but they don't realise what they do have. Things like education, healthcare. Again, if you're in the United States, you can't make the assumption that you're going to get any of those two, especially if you're in a poorer community. But then the other things too is like a community of resilience. These things are sort of underestimated. Because we, we, we went around and we, we went to the rural areas in Vinales, etc. And we saw elements of the state organized plan of how to deal with hurricanes and the hurricane organization in terms of how to deal with elements of climate change so because the society not it's not heavily a consumer society like we are because they don't have that massive input of stuff you know there's no walmart there's no bunnings in in havana or anywhere in cuba so they have to fix things and they're making do with all these different things add that with the sort of that local food production uh, when you go to the restaurant and you say you'd like this and that, they say, sorry, it's out of season, you can't have it. Which is actually, when you think about it, quite sane, as opposed to where we are. We get potatoes at any time and we get broccolis at any time and strawberries at any time of the year because it's from Chile or here or US or whatever. So you sort of go, hold on, how sustainable is that? And obviously the point is it's not, but we just assume. So going to Cuba was really good because it showed us in lots of ways how capitalist we are. And I mean, don't mean that in the sense of making profits, but in the sense of culturally. Like when you go to a shop and there's a queue, because there's a whole culture of queues in Cuba. And there's people, when you go into places like the bank, there's two guys there working the queue. And they make sure, and, and you always ask, who's Ultima? Like, who's last? I'm after you. And, you know, they'll, they'll organise the queue. And there's whole cultures of that. Here, you know, people go, oh, but he didn't smile when I bought my cornflakes or whatever. We're in Cuba. It's much more that, you know, if you're in a, in a little cafe and there's four tables in Australia, if you finished your... I don't know, cake and coffee, whatever, they'll come over, they'll give you the bill, they'll give you the hint, you know, you could bugger off and then someone else could come in because they're standing outside waiting. But in Cuba, they're like, oh, yeah, whatever, they want to sit there, whatever, three hours, doesn't matter. So you do sort of see a bit more about who you are because they don't have those, uh, you know, capitalist sort of ethics around, you know, we're trying to increase production or increase profits so get more people through the door where they're like, oh, yeah, whatever. If you're having a good time in the chair, fine, doesn't matter, whatever. And they're not really worried. So it's actually quite interesting. Did you spend time with families in the rural areas? We do, because we were staying in Casa Particulares, the, the local houses. That's what you were staying in. And so what was interesting in Vinales, for example, because they've had... And Vinales was like tourism central. It's one of the most popular places in Cuba in terms of uh, tourists from all over the world turning up. And what was really interesting was... Often in places where you'll see like a massive influx of wealth, you'll see a few people who become really wealthy... Well, what was interesting was that 
it seemed like the whole town had had their house painted and everything had sort of gone up another level in terms of quality. And the way the money came in was quite well distributed from what we could see. We didn't see anyone rolling around in mercs and whatever and swanning around. Maybe they're there, I don't know. It was quite interesting because nearly everyone's houses or whatever had gone up a level because of the input, the, the wealth that had come into the community, but had been quite divi- quite well divided amongst lots of different people. So you didn't find sort of really shantytown areas and then these wealthy areas. It wasn't. The whole community had gone up a notch, which was very interesting in terms of uh, the way they were actually engaging with tourism. Now, of course, in other parts of Cuba, that's probably not the case, but at least in here it was. And, and this is one of the main tourism areas. So, So did you go outside the tourist areas? Yeah, certainly. Going for walks and going to places outside, you're meeting tobacco farmers or going to places. It's still sort of not far from the, the tourism areas. So you're just seeing some of the, the way people live in terms of, especially in the rural, because in the big cities, well, big cities are pretty much like big cities anywhere, of course. But Cuba is, the Havana, sorry, is sort of crumbling quite a bit because it hasn't really got much wealth to sort of rebuild and fix it up, especially in the sort of poorer areas of Havana. But in the rural areas... There's a certain type of poverty, but it's not a, it's not an immiseration. It's not a sort of deep hunger and illiteracy, etc. So there's a different type. There is a sort of a certain poverty. There's a sort of hardness of life uh, in terms of you know they're working, growing beans or. Is there a lot of mechanisation on the farms? There's some. There's a lot of people like horses. I'd say I don't know. I couldn't say a half, but maybe a third to half, especially in the rural areas of transport, is horses, either in carts, etc. So it's quite a big thing. So again, I think that was about the special period when the Russians took out their oil and everyone had to just change, we can't drive cars, but they've actually kept that. And so there's a whole, life is a lot slower, a lot of people get on horses to do things, take their stuff to market, take the pig here, take whatever, go to school. Of course, there's certain problems in terms of traffic, if you bring horses and whatever in and the horse goes, you know, X kilometres an hour and the car wants to go 15 times faster. But especially outside of Havana, it's not unusual to see horses, etc. everywhere. Is sugar still a big industry? Yeah, sugar and tobacco are still huge. Yeah. I mean, I think they're still the main industry. So it's still coming out of that slave tradition in terms of, you know, that was what slavery was based on, those plantations of sugar and tobacco, and it still pretty much is the main basis. And do they still use trains to transport that to different places? Or is I it trucks? See, I, don't, I think it's more trucks. Mm. And often you'll see those big, and maybe they're Russian, but they look like, for moving cattle or big grains or whatever, and they've actually been slightly refitted, only very slightly refitted for as buses. So when you get on a bus, often it's a bit like a sort of cattle truck or a big Russian type, uh, even military type truck, but it's a very small windows, no air conditioning. It's not really a window. It's sort of like a hole in the metal, and that's the window. So, of course, very cheap to go on these things. Different place and different sort of headspace. What about sustainable energy in Cuba? I have read that they're building solar parks. The whole thing about Cuba in terms of uh, sustainability, one of the things is the cars, because they're quite old, often the chassis will be very old, but then the, the car's been reboard or actually got a new engine two or three times because some of the cars come from the 50s and 60s. But they actually don't have those filters for the petrol, diesel, whatever fumes. So we take that for granted now, like not smoking cigarettes in a in a restaurant. But in Cuba, you're walking down the street and you do get that acrid black, and you do feel that sort of grime on your forehead, you know, after being around it for an hour or two. So there's a lot of that. But what they do have is those electric boat bicycles, motorbikes, which is sort of in some ways a bit scary because all the time, because you don't hear them, and then suddenly they're upon you, 
And it's this like sort of thing that this ghost that sort of rocks up and you're like, whoa. So we saw that in terms of cars. In terms of solar, we didn't see a lot of the solar energy in terms of solar or wind farms. But again, I think that's about investment because Cuba's actually been opening up. And one of the big things they're trying to do is creating an internet infrastructure. And that's partly with the United States. Or actually, it's one of the, the foundations of the opening free trade is the US companies get in to set up the internet. So at the moment, if you want to use the internet, it's in public parks. And it's quite expensive. So it's like two cook, which is quite expensive. Some, some teachers, if they're working a month, they'll get 12 cook. So two cook to actually use the... Um, that's for tourists, but it's not that much cheaper for the, uh, the locals, it might be one cook, to use the internet for an hour. So is it cost of the internet that they haven't brought it in, or is it they don't want all the American shit and that coming into people's I think it's lives? the infrastructure. I don't think they have the infrastructure to actually do it either way. And I think you, you see guys who have actually bit intelligent in terms of how to use it and they have their own routers and they sell and they actually hook into the system so they have found ways so there's all these enterprising young men who have found ways to sort of circumvent that make a bit of money very helpful in terms of what you need and what you want to do in terms of internet and and what i saw was people when they were on their phones whatever it wasn't like they were checking international news from what i could see but they were what they were doing a lot was speaking with relatives especially in places like miami or listening to music it seemed to be just more of a social activity rather than anything more political. So, and, and again, for universities, I'm not sure how people go there, like researchers, like, and obviously people in the government, they want to know what's going on globally, you know, both in Latin America and further afield. So how they find that stuff out. Because what we found was there was no, like, there was Grandma, which is the local sort of Communist Party newspaper, but that wasn't very informative, on the contrary. And you didn't really find out what was going on. So when you went to the bookshops as well, there was a little bit maybe about some of Chavez or Latin America, but very little further. Of course, whether people can afford them is another question. But then in terms of places where people can find out what's going on. So Cuba's quite isolated. And maybe that's one of its saving graces, which was never why it was never invaded. Because I don't think you would have found in places like Colombia, they would have allowed Cuban experience to happen in somewhere like Colombia. The Americans just say, no way. But because it's an island 99 k's away from Florida, maybe that's one of its saving graces that allowed it to exist. They didn't just get obliterated, which, you know, you look at Guatemala, you look at Haiti, you look around the area, and it's like, whoa, they don't muck around. But that isolation is maybe one of its saving graces as well now, because even though they do have a free education system, I do wonder in terms of because of that isolation and not knowing what's going on in the rest of the world, what that means. That's another thing we realise too. We're very globalised, not only in terms of food and trade, in terms of Australia, in terms of what you're able to see, experience, whatever, but in terms of culturally as well, like travel, etc., thinking about other places and knowing and maybe having lived in other places too. I don't think a lot of Cubans have those experiences. So it's quite difficult because, you know, they have sort of Miami as a certain, for some people, like a utopia to go to to escape this shithole, in their words, not mine. But then they get there and then they're like, mm, uh, we've got, you know, police violence in the streets and we've got uh, education's going to be pretty dear. We've got uh, food. Uh, I don't know if you've ever eaten American food, especially in poorer areas. It's not very good. And then you've got also the problems of, you know, healthcare. So, you know, I think a lot of Cubans would then go, oh, wow, because they haven't been able to look what's happening in other parts of the world. It's not that easy to do. So it's quite isolated. And that's one of the biggest things I didn't realise. I mean, you can sort of think about it, but when you're coming from Australia, to just plop yourself somewhere else where it has really been cut off for 60 years in a whole lot of levels, it's quite an interesting sort of headspace shift. And also the fact that they're very well-educated 
society, a lot of people go to university, they're getting all these skills and they're taught to think and think, and yet they're enclosed in that island. Yes, that's, the, that's one of the things, if we were there longer, we'd like to find out more to talk to Cubans about how they... And we did talk to some people, because a lot of the people who are like very well educated, what they end up doing, because the money's in tourism, they end up working there. They don't work at high schools or universities, because the, the, the pay is so poor... We're talking literally a few shekels a month. So they get in, um, into tourism where there's a few tourists and they can, even just taxi-type experiences, they can make five or ten times the amount they'd make in a month in a day, let alone if you're actually a tour operator or you do a guide or whatever. So the other big thing they have in a big export they have, other than the sugar and tobacco in Cuba, from what I understand, is also the medical research and, and doctors. And that's one of their main exports. So they're really focusing on that area because it's one of the way, main ways they create links, not only with places like Venezuela, where you know, where there's a sort of strong link, but even in other parts of the world. So it's it's one of the ways they actually try and, if you will, value add rather than just selling the tobacco sugar. If there's a bad crop, you're in trouble. And also bringing all those students in from all the third world countries. They've been doing that for years and years yeah. to to train to be doctors. So that's one of its other major areas where you know the intellectual capital let's say or training is going on is especially around medicine and how that works and they're obviously making an impact in their own region but even further afield through that but in terms of like i said because of that isolation even though they're educated what that isolation means it's not a question i can answer people who've lived there or know much more than i do but it was an interesting sort of dynamic because people don't there was all these young cubans wearing american flags and american shorts and american underpants and all this sort of stuff and we saw more American flags in Cuba than we did in the United States but it was really quite bizarre like you'd see people like you know a house and they have the American flag flying and we're sort of going wow what's that actually mean it's not just an anti-Americanism it's just sort of weird I had this war with these people and you know whatever and and you're going to fly the flag and yeah maybe your relatives live in Miami but really and we'd ask young guys, what, what, why are you wearing the American flag? Do you love America? Why, what, why don't you go there? And they were saying, no, nah, no, nah, it's not that. It's just fashion. But I thought they were just fobbing us off. They were going, it's not, it's not just fashion. This isn't just fashion. If I walk around with a swastika, it's not just fashion. It's making a statement as well. Like the United States flag is in Cuba. It's, it's but no fashion. one stops them doing it. No, I didn't see anyone getting clobbed on the no. head for doing it. And we saw lots of American flags. Yeah, that's the other thing too interesting as well about the police. I didn't feel there was a great... Now, a lot of people have been in the military, and I think that's one of the strengths of Cuba is they have that strong, not only people who are in the military now, but people who were in the military, and they really like went to Angola or whatever, and they're really quite strong, and they know exactly how it all works for them. But there wasn't that heavy military or police presence in the streets either. You didn't get that. Certainly there was police, and they were trying to stop low-level thefts and sex work on the street and this sort of stuff. But it didn't feel like a heavy-handed... Of course, there may be agents everywhere. We don't know. But the point being, there wasn't that heavy sort of, you know, police with machine guns in your face, intimidatory stuff in Cuba. There, We didn't see any of that. And we were in those areas where there are the you know, low-level crimes, let's say, because I think partly the Cuban state wants the tourists to come because it's a way to get foreign capital, foreign exchange, get some money. Otherwise, how are they going to do it? Because it's quite difficult. And there were lots of people coming from all over the world. Actually, interestingly, not necessarily always United States, but a lot from Canada. There's 11 airports across Cuba. Every single one of those airports has one or two flights a day from Canada. So a lot of Canadians. So there's a big relationship between Canada and Cuba. And then, of course, some people are coming back from the United States who went there in the, I don't know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. 
but the big relationship is with Canada, and that's really where, where there's a big growth. And you see lots of Canadians and lots of Canadian, I don't know flags is the right word, but just sort of insignia showing that they're Canadian. There's some p- people from the US there. Uh, I think there was more after Christmas, but... Big changes coming, though. Well, that's the big issue, and that's what people were talking about was, okay, Fidel's died, and some people were saying, oh, no, Fidel's son is now going to take over, and they were sure that was going to happen. And then, of course, Raul, he's, I think, 84, so he's a pretty old man, and, you know, I don't know how long he's going to be around. So, and, and what levels the changes are. So we definitely saw, like, changes that had happened because now you can own property or certain levels of property because a lot of the places you'll see are actually state-run like bars and places selling cakes and ice creams and restaurants and whatever. And it's not obvious that they are, but that's what they are. What we saw was, especially in Cuba, there wasn't that massive polarization of wealth like you get in Australia, especially in the United States, or in places like Mexico. So the way they're doing it at the moment seems quite sane. It's not you, you, I didn't see any, even in Havana, you, certainly there's wealthy areas and that's where some of the wealthier tourists go. But we didn't see people swanning around with heaps of wealth. In Cubans, either they go off to Miami or they don't stay there. But the, the 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 distinction between the wealthiest Cubans and the poorest Cubans is not as great, not nowhere near as great as like that example in Australia. Just go to Melbourne, the homeless guys, and look up at Collins Street. The polarization there is quite huge. But in Cuba, we didn't see that, which I think is going to mean that the social tensions are much less because they don't have that dynamic. Of course, there's other dynamics they have, but that isn't one. Because then we went to the United States after visiting Cuba and you saw that massive polarity, that incredible racial sort of hatred and tension going on. Two of the stunning things we saw that I really were marked was the young women have never been exposed, like say, for example, in Australia, to the advertising and porn that they are here or in America. And so they have a totally different relationship to their bodies. Again, you're like stepping out of whatever world we're in. And then the other one that's interesting too is the... Afro-Cuban relationship because the Afro-Cubans really were benefited from the revolution from what I understand and they're big supporters of the revolution and they've taken a few steps up because of what happened because they were pretty much miserated coming out of slavery etc but that whole interracial and I don't even like the word racial but that intermixing between cultures etc is just so normal in Cuba and such and not a big issue where if you see a black man and a white woman or vice versa or whatever walking down a street in Melbourne you people will look and freak out and some people might make a comment or whatever in Cuba it's just nothing it's just sort of normalized especially in some of the bigger cities whatever and I'm not saying there's no racism in Cuba but it's a very different type than it is say in the United States or Australia where these things are explosive issues. You don't get that racial in the same way you do in the countries we come from where it's used by politicians to divide and rule and smash people and, you know, there's killings in the street or in the prison, etc. We didn't get that sense. Yeah, it's amazing where you've been in that very small area of the world, like you're talking about Mexico, United States and Cuba, the differences between yeah. the cultures and the societies. Well, when you go to the United... Because we, we went to the United States after going to Cuba and Mexico, and we were, we were having our issues with them and thinking, oh, this is good and this is bad and whatever. And we went to the United States, and we're like, whoa, we have a totally different view of Cuba and Mexico now. Because that place... We were only in Los Angeles for a day, but it's so ready to blow. And it's that race-class issue is just explosive. You know, just engaging with African-Americans and how they do it and wh- what's happening because a big white guy. And you just feel this sort of tension just pulsing very scary place so it was sort of gave gave us an interesting perspective on the others and of course they're armed to the teeth 
with their 15,000 gun shootings a year as well, which go back to Cuba, I don't think there's many gun shootings per year. I think if you got over five or ten, I'd be quite surprised because they don't have those guns. Even the, often the, the coppers will have some guns, but it's not that presence. There's not that gun culture, guns everywhere. You go into some parts of Texas and there's just guns everywhere. You don't have that. Maybe in some of the military installations you do, but just bringing that level of violence and aggression down, which is, in my book anyway, a good thing. Definitely a good thing. And that's award-winning journalist Colin McNaughton, in that, mainly in that part, talking about his visit to Cuba. And last week he talked mainly about his time in Mexico. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. You could be listening 8.55am. You could be listening digital 3CR. You could be streaming. You could be podcasting. All these wonderful things. 3CR. Dot org dot au for those last ones. Hey, are you wearing the latest 3CR t-shirt this summer? We have a limited number of 40th birthday t-shirts for sale. Designed by local artist Emily Floyd, these awesome radical radio t-shirts are available from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. Or you can shop online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. For just $20 or $15 for kids' sizes, you can look great and help 3CR celebrate 40 years of radical radio. There are quite a few corporate monsters dominating agriculture and the whole food chain. And today we focus on Monsanto one of the world's biggest pesticide and seed corporations. And I'm joined by Alan Broughton, a member of the Organic Agricultural Association. But before Alan explains how this came to be and what's to be done to resist a little of the early history of Monsanto. Established in 1901, the company's first product was chemical saccharin, sold to Coca-Cola as a sweetener. Even then, the government knew it was unhealthy and sued to stop its manufacture. In the 1920s, Monsanto expanded into industrial chemicals, some toxic, and the introduction of polychlorinated biphenyls, PCVs, today considered one of the greatest chemical threats to the planet. 1930s produced more chemical products and in the 1940s began research on uranium to be used for the Manhattan Project. Then came pesticides, deadly dioxins, leading to Agent Orange. Alan Broughton explains. They certainly benefited immensely from the Vietnam War because they were the manufacturers of Agent Orange, which was used to defoliate the country. It was also used in uh, in Malaysia, in the Malaysian emergency before the Vietnam War. So they were immense beneficiaries of that. Agent Orange is a combination of about three major herbicides with tremendous uh, lingering effects in Vietnam today. There's still children being born with birth defects because of, of all that defoliation and the contamination of the soil particularly by dioxin, which was an unintended component of of Agent Orange. Monsanto's big venture was into herbicides. Herbicides didn't really come into big use in agriculture until about the 1970s. 
They had been used, as I said, in the Vietnam War before then, but for agricultural use, the boom started in the 1970s. That was particularly with um, these uh, hormonal herbicides like 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T that were part of Agent Orange, but the biggest one was the development of glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, and Monsanto had the patent on that until that patent expired about 15 years ago, I think. The patent was lasted for 30 years, and after that, other companies could start producing glyphosate. Are you aware of what was happening in agriculture in the 70s that precipitated these herbicides coming in? Yes, I was. I got interested in um, biological agriculture when I was at university in 1970. So it was during the fight against the Vietnam War, but also there was Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, became very popular at that time, and there was a, a growing organic gardening movement and so I, I got really interested in it at that time and I've been involved really ever since in uh, various aspects of organic farming. Why were these herbicides invented? What was happening? Why did they see them as needed? Was there a, a major shift in, in agricultural production? No, there wasn't. These things are not generally produced because of an identified need. They're produced because companies think they might be able to develop a market for them. And so they certainly did. Well, insecticides are declining in use quite a lot during the, in the world, especially in Australia, I think, because of integrated pest management techniques. But the big boom is in herbicide use. And once GM crops were developed, then herbicide use increased enormously. What controls have there been over these herbicides over those years? There's various different bodies uh, around the world. Australia has the, I can't remember its title, but there there is a regulatory body and that does take some positive action, but it can take a very long time. Like all of those initial um, organochloride pesticides like DDT, Dieldrin, Lindane, They've all been discontinued. That was because of regulation. So they are banned in Australia and most countries of the world. The herbicide 245T has also been uh, disallowed. What government regulators do, though, is take a lot of the research that is done by the chemical companies and they base their decisions on that. A lot of this is heavily manipulated Monsanto has been caught out several times in manipulating data to prove something is safe. Many different pesticides have been banned over time. Glyphosate is getting close to that as well. Apparently in the European Union, by the end of this year, there will be a total disallowment of glyphosate use in Europe. The major British supermarket chains have all declared they will not accept any produce produced using glyphosate. So that's another really major thing. That becomes an effective ban as well. And several other countries around the world have put in bans on the use of glyphosate. Action does take place, but it takes a very, very long time. See, glyphosate has been in use for 40 years now, and the evidence has been accumulating 
over that time about the harm that it's doing. But regulators, they don't take the precautionary approach. They take the attitude of the chemical companies that you've got to prove that it's, that it's harmful. And of course, the chemical companies do all they can to prove that it's not harmful by manipulating the various tests that they do. And unfortunately, the regulators don't have their own independent laboratories to do testing. It's quite an expensive process. So in a sense, there's a cosy relationship between the regulators and Monsanto and other companies. Oh, there's a very, very cosy relationship. And that's particularly evident in the United States where there is a crossover between the regulators and the, the Monsanto executives. And not just Monsanto, various other companies too, like Dow and DuPont. Dow was a massive beneficiary of the Vietnam War as well. What effectively happens is that the executives of uh, the chemical companies get seconded to organisations like the Food and Drug Administration and the Environmental Protection Association and the United States Department of Agriculture, and they actually write the policy, and then they go back to their, uh, to their role in, in the company. And this happens not just in, uh, to do with uh, pesticides, but it also happens with pharmaceuticals as well, and also energy policy. And that's happened in Australia too, that energy policy is largely written by the energy companies. Can you talk about the harm that has been found to have been caused by glyphosate? Yes. What glyphosate actually does in the plant is that it destroys what's called the shikamate pathway, which is a, a way, it, it's the, the uptake of minerals in order to produce proteins and amino acids and things in the plant. So glyphosate blocks that from occurring, which destroys the plant. Monsanto always said that this is fine for humans because humans and animals don't have this shikamate pathway. But the problem is that microorganisms do. So what the glyphosate does is upset this shikamate pathway in the soil and in the bodies of humans and animals. And in humans, our digestive systems have got about two kilos of microbes that are actually there in order to process the food we use. And this is all being upset by the big intake of glyphosate because glyphosate is in virtually every food. And so this is causing a lot of the major nutritional disorders that people have like allergies, asthma, attention deficit disorder. There's many, many different illnesses in people which have absolutely boomed since the widespread use of, of Roundup occurred. But it's very difficult to prove that, isn't it? Not necessarily. Well, surely if that was the case, it would have been banned. Well, as I said before, regulatory bodies have depended on the chemical companies for a lot of the research, a lot of the research data. But isn't there independent research as well? There's very little of it done. And what is done generally is dismissed by governments and by the organisations, by the chemical companies. It's very hard to get that done. For instance, with genetically modified products, genetically modified seeds, Monsanto does not allow independent researchers to gain access to those seeds. The only way that researchers can get them is illegally 
by buying them on the black market. And so the company can say, well, can say, well, you've got these illegally. We totally dismiss these findings. So there is this problem that there's very, very little independent research that is done. The various universities around the world and publicly funded research organisations don't like to touch this because it's, it's too delicate. And there's been suings done by Monsanto and other companies. There's gross intimidation of, of independent scientists. So it makes it very difficult. But at least the European Union now is now accepting the, the, this research on glyphosate and they are taking action. Maybe it will happen in, in other parts of the world too. I imagine Australia will, will be one of the last because agriculture is so dependent on glyphosate in this country now. Just wondering what happens in developing countries where they have very few regulations and people don't even know what they're spraying or putting on their land. Yes, well, it's in developing countries where there is the, the massive fatality rate from using pesticides. at something like twenty to 30,000 per year, whereas in the industrial countries, the direct poisonings by pesticides is minimal. There's probably only a handful per year. There's a lot more from suicides, but from unintentional fatalities from poisoning, they are immense in, in the third world, and, and that's because there's no training in the use of pesticides. There's usually no protective equipment available. The labels are often in um, a language that people can't read, if they can read at all. And often farmers think that if a certain amount is not quite enough to get rid of all the insects, then they double the amount that they use. And so there's a lot of overuse of pesticides too. Yet the regulatory systems are quite bad in quite a lot of countries, but not all. Like uh, Sri Lanka, for example, is one country that has put a ban on, on the use of glyphosate. But I think DDT is still used in some countries, still being manufactured in the United States and still being exported to some countries. There is a lack of ability in some countries to carry out this regulation that is necessary. What was Monsanto's role in the Green Revolution, particularly in India? Monsanto was one of the corporations developing the um, hybrids, high-production seeds. But a lot of this occurred before Monsanto's big boom in power because Monsanto wasn't really a seed company until about 1990 when, when they started developing genetic modification techniques. Then they decided at that time that they needed to acquire a lot of seed companies in order to... Um, to carry out this work and get the um, GM seeds bred in agriculture. So Monsanto was a big beneficiary of the Green Revolution in India because they were producing quite a lot of the pesticides that were used there. But as far as I know, they weren't really involved in the development of the seeds that were used. Most of that was actually done in publicly funded organisations in, in various countries around the world. But now Monsanto is one of the largest seed suppliers? That's right. Yes, Monsanto has I think, something like 30% of the world seed market. It's planned amalgamation with biochemicals. It goes ahead, then that will increase again. And between them, those two companies will control 
the overwhelming majority of all genetically modified feed in the world. What's been Monsanto's involvement with animal husbandry? Yes, Monsanto developed the recombinant bovine growth hormone, which is only allowed, as far as I know, in the United States. It's not allowed in Australia. It's a a genetically modified hormone to increase milk production in dairy cows. Quite a lot of dairy farmers are using that in the United States because it boosts production. But whenever you boost production, it's always at a cost. And the cost is to the the cow's welfare because the average dairy cow in the United States can only produce milk for for 18 months. And and then it's had it. It's got to be replaced. So with that uh, recombinant bovine growth hormone, because of the concern of consumers about it, some companies wanted to label their product as growth hormone free. But Monsanto kicked up such a fuss about that because it implied that there was something wrong with recombinant bovine growth hormone. They managed to get the United States EPA to make the companies that were putting labelling on to say that the EPA has found there was no adverse effects from recombinant bovine growth hormone. Of course, the EPA was basing its judgment on uh, the research that Monsanto had given them. What's the future going to look like when they're amalgamated or being bought out by Bayer? My personal opinion is that it's not going to make a big lot of difference if Monsanto controls 30% of the seed market or 40%. 30% is far too high. It makes it worse, but uh, the scale of it is, um, is, is not going to be all that big to create a big difference, I think, because already... Monsanto and there's six major pesticide and seed companies in the world and between them these six control the overwhelming majority of the of the market for seeds and pesticides more than 90 percent if there was only three or four companies doing that instead of six companies it's not a major difference I would say that does not mean that we shouldn't be opposing this merger because opposing the merger can actually bring out the issues of uh, corporate concentration in general. What are your thoughts on the the new genetic modification techniques? I don't have a lot of information on it. Well, actually, I do have the information, but I haven't read it yet. It's quite complicated. I just received uh, an email newsletter recently from um, the African Biodiversity Network, which provided a lot of detail about that. So this is genetic modification using different techniques which Monsanto and the other corporations believe will mean that they don't have to have any sort of regulatory system on them at all. So this is one of the major reasons that they want to do it, I think, is to avoid the GM label on the product. What's to be done? You've called Monsanto a corporate monster? Yes, it is. Monsanto is not the only corporate monster that is dominating agriculture. There are quite a few of them, both in seed production and distribution, pesticide production and distribution, fertilisers, marketing, processing, all of those things. The whole food chain is being incredibly dominated by these corporations. But have the other big companies been involved with issues like dioxin and Agent Orange? Or is that just Monsanto? I think just Monsanto, 
Dow Chemicals was producing some sort of chemicals that were used in the Vietnam War, but it was particularly Monsanto. Dioxin is a byproduct of quite a few industrial processes, including paper manufacture. One reason why uh, there was that big opposition to the pulp mill in northern Tasmania. What's to be done? You can look at it in a few ways. There's the personal solution. People, if they buy organic produce, organic fair trade produce, they shop at farmers markets. That helps reduce the market for the, the corporations. But that's only going to be a minor irritant. It's not going to have a big effect. But that is something that people can do. Farmers need to get well organised in order to find other marketing systems that avoid the massive profits that the corporations take out and also using ecological systems so that they don't need the inputs that those companies are providing. This is a rapidly growing thing now in in the United States, the organic industry is absolutely booming because so many consumers want to completely avoid genetic modification and the only way to do that is to only buy organic products. In Australia, there's a, a really big interest for, among farmers in developing biological techniques for farmers. I went to a seminar yesterday in South Gippsland which was on that topic and there were 70 farmers there and they were all really keen to understand the alternatives to chemical inputs and I've, I've been to quite a lot of other conferences of farmers and this is becoming a really big issue now and farmers do realise the harm that these things are doing and also the massive profits that are being taken out of their sales in order to pay for them. And how difficult is it for farmers to be organic in, in this time? Not all that difficult at all. The information is all out there, the experience is out there. There are several thousand certified organic farmers in Australia and there's probably that many farmers again who are using biological techniques but they are not certified. Yes, there's plenty of knowledge, there's plenty of experience. Government is a huge opposition. The Australian governments are one of the very, very few in the world that don't even pay lip service to um, alternative agriculture. In the European Union, they've had support for organic farming for many decades now, and even in the United States, quite a few of the state governments have got support programs and they do research at universities in alternative agriculture. Virtually none of that happens here. Why? That's a good question. The governments tend to promote this idea that there's nothing wrong with Australian agriculture, that it's clean and green, but that's quite a myth. It's not true at all. We, we might have less air pollution than in uh, the Northern Hemisphere, but apart from that, chemical uses in agriculture here is as high as, as anywhere else in the world. Agriculture is not clean and green, but th the government likes to promote that partly in order to stimulate exports, but th there's probably other reasons too. They just are not interested in looking at other techniques. They've got this fixation on technology as being the solution to everything, whereas a lot of the problems are in agriculture are caused by technologies. And so virtually all government research and a lot of university research goes into finding a solution to a new problem that has arisen because of technology that has produced it. For instance, in cropping now, 
because of the massive use of herbicides in no-till cropping, weeds are becoming more resistant and new fungal diseases are developing all the time. So the research effort goes into creating new and better fungicides in order to control those diseases and also looking at chemical alternatives to the current lot of herbicides which are losing their effectiveness. A treadmill, it is, it's a treadmill. There's many causes for this increase in pest and disease attack. Fertilisers are part of the cause of it. Soil carbon destruction, which is caused partly by fertilisers and the use of various pesticides, particularly herbicides. Once your soil structure is destroyed and you lose the carbon, then the soil has got no resilience and the plants have got no resilience. So they're a lot more prone to pest and disease attack. With the uh, genetically modified crop in North America now, particularly canola, cotton, corn, soy, there's been a massive outbreak of fusarium disease. It's a soil-borne disease, it's a root-rotting disease, and that has been greatly stimulated by the use of Roundup on these Roundup-ready crops because it upsets the soil balance and the pathogens in the soil start to outnumber the beneficial organisms in the soil because they're always the first to be destroyed by the chemicals. So what you're saying, Alan, is that the, the answer is grassroots people doing it for themselves, whether they're that, you right. and me or they're now small farmers. Yes, both. But we actually need a massive worldwide movement to counteract the power of those corporations. And this is possible. Eventually, the aim should be to completely break them up so that they don't have that power at all. Now, that's not something that's going to be very easy to do, although it has happened in the past. In the 1930s, some big corporations were broken up then in order to, uh, to stop their monopoly control. Well, that can happen again, although in this period the corporations are a lot more powerful than they were in the 1930s. Public pressure can have some effect, it's only really through public pressure that the glyphosate ban coming in in Europe is, is, is happening. It was only through public pressure that the bans on DDT and Dieltrin came in in the 1970s. So this is possible. And there are many organisations that are trying to do this thing. So people can get involved in those organisations, like the Gene Ethics Network, MADGE, the various organic farming associations all around Australia, the permaculture groups, the Food Sovereignty Alliance. There are many people working in in order to publicise these issues and take some action against them. And that was author and organic farmer Alan Broughton and he'll be in Melbourne on Thursday for a book launch and the book is Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed. Small Farmers, Food Security and Big Business. And that's a book co-authored by Alan Broughton and Elena Garcia. And I'll just read you from the promotion. Across the world, agriculture, on which all human life depends, is under sustained attack by big business. Small farmers are everywhere being forced off the land and replaced by big corporate outfits, whose sole aim is profit maximisation. The industrial farming practices by agribusinesses is marked by land degradation and heavy use of insecticides, herbicides and fertiliser. 
Agribusiness is also a big contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. But contrary to the myths spread by big businesses, the evidence shows that the family farms are far many more times productive and better cared for than those large holdings. This is a primer on what's wrong with corporate profit-centred agriculture and the fight for a people's-centred alternative. And that book, Lunch, Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed, is this Thursday at the Multicultural Hub. And that's 506 Elizabeth Street in the city, opposite the Victoria Market. Alan will be there, Alan Broughton, with his co-author, Elena Garcia. And it's in the Purple Room, Level 1 of the Multicultural Hub, 506 Elizabeth Street in the city. Somewhere to go Thursday evening and find out a lot more than what you've been able to hear from Alan this afternoon. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Species extinction worldwide is happening at an alarming rate from marine mammals through to land species and birds. But perhaps the most alarming are reports of dying bee populations, the most important animal species for our ultimate survival, as they, more than any other animal species, are crucial for producing fruit and vegetables. And in Australia, the decline is also serious and one major cause is thought to be pesticides that are banned in the EU. On the line is retired research chemist Coral Winter. Coral, we all know the role of bees in making honey, which we enjoy, but that's only a minor role, isn't it, in food production for humans? It's the European honeybee that does a lot of the fertilisation in Australia, all around the world. They fertilise all our vegetables and all our fruit, if you think of pumpkins, lemons, cranberries, squash, bustles, sprouts, almonds especially, oranges and apples, everything, and, and even lucerne, which we use to feed our cattle. Bees pollinate 90% of our food. They're such an important player in our food production. We have 1,600 varieties of native bees here in Australia, which people don't realise, but only two of those species are social 
and form hives to make honey. But the honey produced by our native bees is a very small amount of honey. That's why the colonisers, when they came here in 1800, brought the European honeybee with them to pollinate and to um, make uh, honey here because the bees here aren't that good for that. But besides that, our native bees pollinate a lot of our vegetables for the farmers for free. Although they don't make much honey, they have it play a massive role in pollinating our, our food production. There is many papers now talking about the serious decline in bee populations. Do you have any figures of just how serious it is? They're saying virtually that all the bees in um, the Middle East, Europe and the United States have been absolutely devastated. I have got figures for the United States in which they said in um, 2012 the USA lost 60% of its bee population and then they lost another 40% in 2013. I don't know what the latest figures are, but Australian bee apiarists made a fortune last year and the year before sending queen bees to the United States because their population was so devastated. Because over there also they use, have to use a commercial supplier of bees to pollinate their almond population, you know, almond trees. They've got huge hundreds of acres of almond trees, but they need bees to pollinate them. And because of the devastation of their bee population, they had to import Australian bees, queen bees, to do that. I think the queen bee will set up its own hive. The queen bee, um, when she's fertilised by a male bee, will produce 2,000 eggs a day. So that's how they start their hive. But what happened in the United States, is what I read about, is that Because these commercial bee suppliers were moving their bees from one area of the country to another area, like sort of week after week, the bees got exhausted and they think that's also contributed to their death and to the the disappearance of bees in the United States. Well, another probable cause is the spraying of certain insecticides. Yeah, that's right. It's the spraying of these neonicotinoids. Um, or they, some of them are there, uh, sometimes they're called just the neonics. It's an insecticide produced by Bayer and uh, Sagenta, the big companies in the um, United States, and they now think they're, being, they're destroying the bees and their ability to remember which beehive they, they come from and, and destroying their uh, neurons because of the, these particular neonicotinoids that were developed by Bayer. And the problem is that the EPA in the United States don't test for the um, effect of insecticides on bees. So that's why they've escaped through this loophole. And what about other countries? Are they still accepting them? Well, they've been totally banned now in France. They're partially banned in Europe and Canada is now accepting a ban. But they're still available in Australia, of course. The Australian organisation that's responsible for this um, area of uh, control of pesticides, the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medicines Authority, has been dragging its feet for years and nothing has been done about um, banning these these pesticides. I mean, if this hits the Australian... The bees in Australia are considered to be very healthy, but if this is allowed to continue, they're going to destroy the bee population. What um, sort of um, began... This um, my interest in bees was recently a, a large commercial beekeeper in Darlington Point in the Riverina 
just had to move, was forced to pack up and move all his bees because of, they were devastated by the drift from nearby cotton farms that use these insecticides. And apparently they spray these insecticides up to nine times a year on the cotton fields. Yes, it's because of the new genetically modified cotton that they can now grow in the Riverina area, which they weren't possible before. Because of they're now growing it around there, then that's, they're now spraying yeah, nine times a year in this area and um, destroying the bee population around there that, that we're, and where we grow a lot of, a huge percentage of our food in the Riverina area. And I dare say that beekeeper's not, not the only one who's had to move. Well, I don't know of any others or, um, you know, the exact figures for that, but I know that this company lost about 500 hives in 2013 that was insecticide spray drift from nearby cotton farms and so they're now I think moved um, permanently out of that area because of the, the danger to, the, to his hives. Another probable cause is the varroa mite or varroa destruction, destructor. I'll just read that I've read on. In 1987 Monsanto and other large chemical manufacturers developed a GM insecticide and herbicides as a quick remedy to fix the mite invasion and these weakened the bees' defence to fight off the mites, therefore contributing to the vanishing bee population. I don't know that much about that um, aspect of it. I do know that the varroa mite, it's sort of, it's a parasite. It developed in the 1950s, actually, in Japan, um, and then spread in the 1970s to Europe. It transmits a virus and other pathogens which kill the entire colony of tens of thousands of bees. The varroa mite itself is blind, but it jumps onto a, the female bee and then, and then can begin to propagate. That's another massive problem, the varroa mite. But I, I, I'm not sure if the um, pesticide that was developed by Monsanto was effective. Well, how do people counteract the mite? Well, see, here in Australia, we've been free of the varroa mite because we had very strict quarantine conditions. Well, also, they protected the bee population here because they were worried about the varroa mite. We used to have a quarantine plant on the on the um, North Head Peninsula in which any bees that came into Australia, um, especially imported um, queen bees, they would have to stay there for two generations to ensure that there was no disease. But the land, you know, it was prime real estate, was sold for apartments, of course, apartment blocks. So no bee imports have been allowed into Australia since that time. But what has happened is that they found the varroa mite in a collection of bees in Cairns in 2007. And now they think that they haven't been able to stop it and it's been moving south. It's the Asian bee that carries it. And so they have been in the past very strict about this, but... They found this um, Asian bee with a varroa mite on a mask on a boat in Cairns. They're lucky enough to find that, but there's probably other boats or, or other for, or other ways of getting the varroa mite into Australian bee population, and they think it's now moving south, south and, and contaminating our bees. So I don't know what they're going to do about it. <laughs> they have to do something about this incredible situation because without bees we will just won't have any food security. I suppose it works that the the mite gets on one bee and the bee goes back into the hive and it just spreads throughout the colony. Is that what happens? But I think it's carried, yeah, it's on any bee. Yeah, they can carry it. And once it's infected, um, any bee, 
um, it'll just start um, producing. But I think it needs. I think it needs to get onto the um, the female, the queen bee. It's a wonder over the t- over time that the bees haven't built up an immunity to things like this. Well, they think they can. That's right. They think that the bees can build up an immunity for the varroa mite. But with the spraying of these neonicotinoids, that stopped this ability of the bees to survive this um, invasion of the mite. Look at climate change worldwide. What's known about the impact of that on bees? The climate change is going to change the way bees behave. Um, where they can forage and the quality of the nectar that they have access to and that the more extreme temperatures may also change the plant physiology and the, uh, the pollen availability to bees as well as bee physiology and behaviour and um, the local in- environment. So it's a real, it's a massive problem. There's just one other thing I'd like to mention that nobody sort of talks about but it's apparently... They know very little about bees, and, and this research has been done in Europe and the United States and elsewhere. It's none, none of it is being done in Australia because they won't fund it. But um, they're thinking there's a role of electricity, electrostatic electricity, in the way that the bees pollinate um, flowers. They think that when the bee flies, it accumulates a positive charge, but the petals of many flowers accumulate a negative charge in relation to the air around it and the tiny hairs on the bee's body bend slightly towards the flower and then when the body hairs on the bees bend they're connected to neurons especially sensitive to this interaction and when the bees land on the flowers this static effect from their hairs also attracts the pollen and the bee then combs her body to store the pollen more securely in a region of the back legs called the pollen basket or the cubicular. So um, the flower will still have a lower charge of electrons after this visit, which lasts for about 100 seconds. And they think this is how bees also know whether flowers have been visited by an, another bee um, just previously. So it, it, you know, it's very interesting sort of how the bee is attracted to particular flowers and how they carry out this pollination. And nobody knows very much about it and there's so little research done. But it's such an important and basic you know, necessity of, of the way we produce our food. Is it known whether or not bees are attracted to certain colours? Yes. Well, you see, they're also saying that bees see a slightly different range of colours, that the red colour of many flowers, they've been adapted or evolved to attract hummingbirds or butterflies for pollination. But other flowers, mainly a blue colour, the, the bees can see the bluer colour, which is the ultraviolet range of um, light, um, much better than red. And so that's why they're um, attracted to flowers that have a, a bluer colour. So, yeah, it's really, really interesting. And well, uh, well, on top of this, you know, because of these... The, the neonics, they also think the bird and butterfly numbers are plummeting, which also means, you know, a drop in um, pollination of our, of, our, of our flowers. Most of us have had a bee sting and we're told that a bee dies when it does release that sting. Is that very unusual in an insect or a creature? 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that aspect. <laughs> I do know the way the bees behave in the hive is really strange. I've just been reading a little bit about it. Well, they say that one bee will live for about 40 to 50 days and in a lifetime makes about half a teaspoon of honey. I guess that's a European bee honey. There are three casts of bees. The queen bee, yeah, produces the eggs because the female worker bee is infertile and it's only um, the drone or the male who can fertilise, of course, the queen bee. And for every male bee, there are three to four females. But it's the female bees who do all the work, collecting the nectar and the pollen. And in relation to sort of bees dying, what I have read is that the male bees have their wings chewed off so that they can't fly, and so they really don't do anything else in the hive except look for a, a queen bee to mate with. And when after the male bee mates with the queen bee, his genitals are eaten, they say, <laughs> and then to destroy his life, I guess. And then the queen bee will, you know, lay at least um, 2,000 eggs a day. Have we got people sitting outside a beehive and just observing all this, have we? I don't know. I don't know how they produce, get this research, but I suppose it's really... Yeah, it's, it's funny, these three casts of bees that exist in the hive, it's quite incredible. It's, you know, it's, it's a quite incredible when you think of the evolution and how that's developed, and it's very amazing. Looking at our role in suburbia with bees, plant variety in gardens, does that help the bees? Yes, and um, especially if you plant um, yeah, anything, flowers, anything that produces a blue flower will help the bees, bring them, will bring them to your garden so they then will pollinate other flowers. Now there's also an urban bee society group in, uh, I know it's in Sydney, I don't know about Melbourne details, but they will supply native bees to your backyard and set it up and um, and you just leave it there and they will um, help sort of, you know, because Australian native bees, they don't sting, you see. It's only the, maybe, I think it's only the European honeybee that stings. I'm not sure whether this is absolutely true, but I know most of, this, of the Australian native bees do not sting. So you can have them in your backyard and backyard and garden without any problem. I was going, I investigated this at one time, I was going to do it. They'll do it for about $250 and just put it in a, it needs a sunny spot in your garden. And the native bees, they only fly about 100 to 200 metres away from the hive. So you have to have sort of, you know, a few flowers or plants around in, near your area. But that would be a wonderful way. They're doing it in Sydney all over the place now, with, um, also in, in tops of uh, hotels where they've got gardens. They're putting in um, beehives. So there's um, a group you can uh, look at the website. It's called the urbanbeehive.com.au, and they will um, yeah help you put um, beehives in your back garden. So that's that's a great thing that I think everybody can try and do. They won't produce much honey, but it would help all the pollination. And I think they all supply native or European bees. Make sure we we have a huge population of um, of bees. Well, I think this urban, the Urban Beehive Company will supply European bees if you do want um, to collect honey. So to conclude, 
Coral, it's so important that we protect the bees. Well, it's absolutely important that Australia must consider banning these pesticides as well because we use the same chemicals as the European Union and the United States and the Middle East and we, we have the same reliance on the bees for pollination. So it's really important that, be, that Australia looks at this question and, and um, starts to move and, and starts to ban these neonicotinoids. And the other thing is that what's happening in Europe anyway is that Bayer and Monsanto are asking the European Union to merge as one company. And if they do, if they allow that, it's going to be a total disaster for our bee population. There'll be a massive giant that controls something like fifty billion dollars worth of our seed seed um, supplies. So that will kill the bee population if that merger is allowed to take place. But one, the first thing Australia must do is start beginning to ban these neonicotinoids. They're nasty things, don't they? That's retired research chemist Coral Winter talking about the importance of bees just to civilization and just the bees themselves. It's coming up to 23 minutes past five o'clock. CCR presents a great night of entertainment at Bella Union, Thursday, the 27th of April. Jonathan Alley will MC a stellar lineup, including 3CR DJs Kate and Susie spinning tracks for a lazy Thursday night. Fiona Scott Norman's one woman show, The Needle and the Damage Done. Ian McFarlane's book launch of the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop Music. And an unleashed version of Super Flutie's Free Association radio show with Clem Basto, Casey Bonetto, Scott Edgar, and Christos Chorkas. That's Saturday, the 27th Thursday, of... the oh. 27th of April, Bella Union at Trades Hall. Doors open at 6.30. For tickets, go to bellaunion.com.au or at the door if not sold out. This is a 3CR benefit. So see you there. Let's make it the largest walk yet. Demanding permanent protection in Australia for asylum seekers found to be refugees, closure of detention centres and freedom for all refugees. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice. Hear a human rights lawyer, a teacher, a refugee and a panel of interfaith speakers. Sunday the 9th of April at the State Library in Swanson Street at 2pm with our walk through the city finishing back at the State Library by 3.30. Organised by the Refugee Advocacy Network a 3CR supporter. Are you a 16 to 19 year old guy? You could have the opportunity to help us research HPV and be reimbursed for your time. We are investigating the prevalence of human papillomavirus, or HPV infection, among young men. This important research is being carried out at the Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, 580 Swanston Street, Carlton. For information and to see if you are eligible, call 1800 875 121 or visit mshc.org.au forward slash sign up. The Melbourne Sexual Health Centre is a 3CR supporter. No, 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 no,
Hey, are you wearing the latest 3CR t-shirt this summer? We have a limited number of 40th birthday t-shirts for sale. Designed by local artist Emily Floyd, these awesome Radical Radio t-shirts are available from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. Or you can shop online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. For just $20 or $15 for kids' sizes, you can look great and help 3CR celebrate 40 years of Radical Radio. Finally on Tuesday Home Time, we turn to Malaysia and Timor-Leste with Asia-Pacific Environmental Consultant Lee Tan. Before we look at those environmental concerns in both those countries, Lee Tan, Malaysia has been in the news a great deal lately and we can't go past the murder of Kim Jong-nan, the estranged brother of the North Korea leader Kim Jong-un. How's it been covered in Malaysia? The way it's been reported, obviously Malaysia is trying to pitch a position of uh, being really anti-North Korea, trying to show up the dictatorial and the injustice and the brutality of the North Korean regime, particularly is, uh, is it President Kim Jong-un. I also see this as a distraction, deliberately play up and uh, given the profile to try and distract citizens from questioning, you know, Malaysia's own Prime Minister Najib Razak over the One Malaysia Development Corporation scandal, corruption scandal that's been going on for over a year now, uh, with no prosecution as yet in Malaysia, while other countries have already prosecuted wrongdoers. They have actually found people guilty. In other countries, okay. yes, definitely. United Arab Emirates uh, and also in other countries like USA, several senior financial officers of um, banking in, in, uh, institutions have been uh, sacked and uh, so on and so forth. I think the only people who's kind of escaped prosecution so far has been uh, the Prime Minister himself and um, Joe Lowe, who is the mastermind behind him. The investigations are still ongoing in other countries, uh, in Switzerland, in US, and also, I think, Thailand, still in uh, Saudi and Hong Kong and Singapore. There's several, there's about six or seven countries investigating the roles of their institutions in the scandal. Just remind us of how much money's at stake here. The exact figure is always questionable. The one MDB itself, the corporation, the the investment corporation itself, has a big deficit hole of thirty billion Malaysian ringgit, which is about ten billion Australian. That's a huge amount of money for a small country like Malaysia. But you know the the figures that's kind of being known in Malaysia is around. Uh, 1 to 10 billion uh, in terms of those that they could track, they are aware about. Swiss Bank indicated there were some 6 billion 
U.S. involved in illicit transactions, which they are still investigating, but they're having problems because um, from the Malaysian side, they, they have refused to give documents, even though they do have documents available, which can review the full story behind a scandal. And whose money is it? It's the citizen public funds. One MDB has been set up by Joe Lowe and the Prime Minister as a sovereign trust fund to hold revenue, basically excess revenue, from uh, the country with the excuse to invest in various good investment, I guess, overseas. But at the end, uh, well, at this stage, it is running at a huge deficit, as I mentioned before, you know, to the tune of 10 billion Australian because of this corruption scandal. And it's not likely there will be a successful investigation in Malaysia itself? No, not until the Prime Minister Najib Razak is gone. Basically, the whole regime at the moment or administration has been set up by him personally. And yeah, I guess it's difficult to expect any independent and uh, accountable investigation given this situation. It appears that Julie Bishop's not showing much concern. She was in Malaysia last week, I believe it was, talking with a a few ministers. Actually, I have not heard anything significant arising from her visit uh, beyond the usual diplomatic public relation statements. But it's a show of support? I guess, you know, many of the Western leaders are trying to make friends with so-called moderate Islamic state government, although Malaysia is questionable where Malaysia is really an Islamic state, but is seen as a moderate Islamic rule country. We are living in a post-truth era, unfortunately, and uh, corruption is tolerated, unfortunately, and very... Frighteningly so. Yeah, I'm sure in Australia, you know, corruption is also on the rise and much of it has not really been dealt with either. And there's more of a a whiff of corruption concerning the Linus plant in Malaysia. Well, in that sense that $5 million is meant to be set aside for the ultimate, well, the eventual cleanup and management of the radioactive waste. But the whereabout of that five million and how that five million should have been uh, managed, it should be disclosed in public. But to date, we have not seen any report or plan or strategy coming out from the Malaysian government, despite that being a um, recommendation from the IAEA, you know, to ensure that the government provide accurate, up to date, transparent information. The public. And just for those who are not up on the Linus case, how did it get going to the state where you have this rare earth processing plant in Malaysia? Well, precisely, that's a good question. In Australia, the Linus, through its predecessor, has actually got approval to construct a similar kind of refinery in Mina, a small outback town not far from the mine. And if that had happened, um, the management of the waste would have to adhere to Australian law and regulation and practices. But that 
plant uh, to construct the whole operation in that area, Linus would have to commit to 41 or 44 conditions. And that means money. That means high cost and that means very stringent uh, monitoring and also practices. And of course, you know, going to Malaysia, they, they have forgone all of that requirements. They basically got approval for the plant, I guess, you know, within months, when in Australia would have taken Linus years. And, you know, today it would still not be up yet, like the other rare earth processing proposal that's happening here in this country. Yeah, it is not hard to guess why Linus would choose Malaysia. Not only that it had fast-tracked the operation, but it also got 100% tax concession, which means that it paid nothing to the country in terms of taxes. That's outrageous because given the fact that Linus is actually importing material that has radioactive elements that are very expensive and difficult to manage, in a country that actually hasn't got that high capacity technically to manage that kind of waste, we might remember that Malaysia has already got a, a, a toxic legacy from a similar kind of refinery from Mitsubishi about 20 years ago in a neighboring state from uh, Pahang, where the current plant is located. Then a Japanese Mitsubishi set up a refinery. That refinery is actually quite was quite small. It's um, about 10 times smaller than the Linus plant, but it has no proper waste management strategy, and toxic waste was dumped illegally and legally everywhere. And today the cleanup exercise is still not 100% complete. The government of Malaysia has not really been disclosing exactly what's happening and the public do not have the kind of technical capacity to fully understand the risk and the hazards that particular plant posed on their health. And now, you know, you've got Linus operating in Malaysia, dumping its waste. And the latest proposal from the company is to turn its waste into agriculture soil conditioner is called and they're trialing it again you know without having to go through stringent licensing or uh, risk and hazards analysis you know Linus is proposing to have its waste scattered literally throughout the country which is very very irresponsible for a company that claims to have all the international standards and so on and so forth what about the regulatory body the international one because Malaysia had not signed on to the Convention on the Disposal of Radioactive Waste, nobody can do anything about it. And I'm sure Linus has checked that out before they decide to locate the plant in Malaysia. What are the local people trying to do about all this? I think they're feeling quite helpless and hopeless in many ways. They have campaigned actively for years, of back in 2011 up to about 2013, 14, they are tired because um, they had put in a lot of energy, a lot of their own resources into the campaign, and it amounted to nothing in their eyes because the company is given licenses by the government. They are aware of the governance problems in the country, and they felt quite helpless and hopeless in some way.
and they have you know their own survivor to worry about. They have actually lost a lot of uh, income in that period of protest. And also the concerns, future concerns about their health and the health of the environment. Yes, they they all aware of it. And uh, they have to live in denial in some way because um, they feel like they have little choice beyond migrating overseas, which is impractical for the majority of the people. The indigenous struggles in Malaysia go back a long way, don't they, from things like logging, land clearing, forced relocations. There's a big story in Malaysia at the moment we're not hearing much about. Yes, the indigenous struggle for land rights has been an ongoing issue, although Back in the 80s, listeners in 3CR would have heard from the indigenous Penan people from Sarawak who blockaded against the logging of their rainforest homes. Since then, we haven't heard much about other struggles, but the struggle actually has not stopped. Uh, The Penan people continue to struggle for land rights back in Sarawak. They made some progress, but they also faced with huge, immense challenges. But that resistance hasn't actually stopped. Right now, what we are seeing is another new, very encouraging phenomenon in peninsular Malaysia. Much of Peninsula's rainforest has been logged, with the exception of the state of Kelantan and Pahang to a certain extent. This group of indigenous people, or we call them Orang Asli, in the state of Kelantan, quite well organized, mainly because they are getting a lot of support and getting some level of acknowledgement of their rights from uh, mainstream Malaysian. And that's very unusual because when the Penang struggle happened in the 80s, much of the support came from overseas, from people who are environmentalists, people who's been active in the green movement. But right now, the struggle in Kelantan with the Orang Asli has been supported predominantly by mainstream Malaysians, professionals like lawyers, doctors, people who are not happy with the current system people who can feel injustice within their own sphere, but they're also seeing it happening to those who are marginalised, like the Orang Asli or the Indigenous Malaysians. And it is encouraging to see that they are willing to take up a stance to support the blockade set up by the Orang Asli against logging company. And we're quite sure that a lot of these loggings happened without due processes being followed. Very high-profile lawyers are supporting the Orang Asli, which is very encouraging. And what happens to the logs? Um, They get sold mostly to China and sometimes, you know, cut into timber and imported into a country like Australia. Australia still has very weak law on imported tropical hardwood, When I was in ACF, we campaigned together with other groups, Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, to try and toughen the legislation on imported timber, but it's been an uphill battle here in Australia. And what happens to the the soil, the land, when the logs are removed? Uh, In a wet tropic, land in general in the forest are not very fertile. They basically fertile in so far, you know, as long as the forest remains standing. Once the the tree cover is gone, 
the land is exposed to the monsoon deluge and the tropical heavy downpour. That washes away the topsoil very quickly. And uh, what is revealed is um, clay and very infertile soil that needs a lot of work before you can plant on it. And it causes massive landslide, river pollution, and also soil erosion. As you said before, the, the Penang and other groups were forced off their land many years ago. Has anyone followed the groups up to see how they yes, are? Yes, um, I've been keeping in touch with some of the Penang people. Basically, the one in the interior have been spared. Some of them adapted to a much more farming-oriented way of life. Those who still live in intact forest area, they managed to still maintain their culture and their lifestyle of uh, being semi-nomadic. You know, they still continue to get support from outside and also within, getting organized within themselves. And because the interior forests are much harder to access, they've been spared so far. They've been a, a, a movement to build a biosphere reserve for the Penan. It is still in negotiating stage. I guess the government is aware of the political repercussion by pushing the Penan out. So in that sense, you know, the, the struggle and the movement support has been successful in that we have given the Penan a lot of courage. They have gotten a little bit more political power as a result. We've been talking about a Western Australian company in Malaysia. There's another very large company in Western Australia, which is now in East Timor. It's Timor Cement, which is owned primarily by the Buckerich group of companies. Buckerich is basically a construction and development company from uh, Perth. It has been involved in many major infrastructure and uh, development projects in Western Australia. Now, it has somehow found this very rich limestone and clay deposit in Baokao district of uh, East Timor or Timor-Leste. It's very much on the way to get that develop into a mega cement plant to mostly export cement or raw cement to Australia to basically profit from that. Now there's social issues, there's environmental issues. What else is there? Yeah, it is a very serious issue in that sense that cement or limestones are usually, well, are found in cast landscape. And cast landscape from an ecological and geological point of view it's uh, rather complex. It's got a very close uh, relationship with uh, water supply or the hydrology of cast. It's uh, way too complex for us to study to be confident enough to be able to exploit the structure. But this company is proposing to extract something like 7,000 tons of limestone a day and that's huge amount of limestone we're talking about. Aren't there alarm bells ringing? Not really, because I don't think the Timorese are aware of the scale of the operation. The company has done some initial consultation. I think the technical information is kind of delivered in such a way that the real issues have been uh, masked. 
I mean, while the company acknowledged their ecological impact and so on and so forth, but you know that kind of very generalized statement means very little to local people, particularly. A much more transparent kind of community consultation is needed, but it's not going to happen, unfortunately, unless civil society in Timor Leste and perhaps you know and in Australia take that up, and that's not going to be likely because everyone's struggling to survive. How are they proposing to extract it and get it to Australia? They've built a uh, port in Valkal to ship the crinker, which is raw cement, through containers, I guess, or through purpose-built vessel. You know, it's not difficult to go through the sea and end up in Australian ports. But how does it get to the ship? Either pipeline or through land transport. I suspect it's going to be through land transport. And what are the roads like? Well, the road been in very bad shape so they will be constructing new roads specifically you know from the port to the cement plant the cement plant is some five kilometers from the port so it's not that far in terms of logistics the company's actually got the upper hand on this what kind of benefit will be there for the timorese we have yet to know in details but the company's promising jobs and in this day and age jobs seems to be like the what do you call it the carrot teamers may not understand the kind of jobs that they will be given they may not understand the occupational health and safety concern associated with a cement plant in a country like Timor Leste where again you know both occupational and safety environmental regulations are both very very weak get a lot of pollution from cement plant particularly when there's no proper air pollution control the location of the cement plant is actually quite high up on the plateau uh, being a little island you get the sea breeze blowing the dust inland there meant to be a whole range of environmental impact and social whatever impact studies none of us have actually seen it but the approval has been given for them to construct the plant and that again is like putting the horse before the cart what about energy to power all this well that's another controversial issue timo through his own diesel power plant has surplus electric power and yet the company is proposing to build a coal power station from the public relation front i can see that they have wind farm but on the other hand if you look at their proposal in details there's a coal power plant in the pipeline as well i don't quite understand but i can imagine what they're trying to do which is to try and use their own source of power through a dirty coal power station and that will come from australia i guess so i would say it's cheap to ship raw cement out bringing dirty coal from australia i mean it makes the whole shipping operation very efficient what about the concern for water yeah well that's community concern and in so far as the company's concerned they haven't actually quite addressed the issue they talked about tracer test again you know those tracer tests you need to do it so repeatedly and oh across the different season both the dry and the wet season we cannot draw conclusion from just one or two tests
if they blast the wrong area, it can upset the whole hydrology. It can bring in salt water, you know, into the freshwater reservoir, or it can destroy the whole entire freshwater reservoir for the people in Baokao. And in Baokao, water and the limestone caves and so on and so forth, they are of spiritual and cultural importance for the communities. I'm not sure how much of that has been taken into consideration. I've got a story up through the Saturday paper through a journalist in Australia on that the Timor Cement project. And uh, we share it in a Facebook page in Timor Leste. And one of the senior politicians kind of saying that, oh, you know, we just want to keep the Timorese in caves and what have you, you know, without really explaining and justifying this project. So they're sort of arguing, well, we've spent 15 years or whatever as an independent nation. Yes. We've got 90% of our resources for the government are still coming from the oil and gas. Oil and gas. So yes. we'll, we'll diversify and we'll get it from cement. That's in the mind of most people who support the project. But I don't think they're giving enough thought into the real impact of this kind of projects. Sure, you know, Timor needs cement. Well, why can't they have smaller size cement companies owned and operated locally? I mean, cement plant is not so complicated or sophisticated that a country like Timor cannot build its own. Yeah, there's no need to bring a big corporation that's going to export 70% of the raw cement out of Timor with a lot of ecological and social costs which have yet to be calculated or even estimated. And I would imagine that the vast majority of the profits go back to Australia. Definitely. All those details we have not seen, but if it is exporting 70% to Australia, you can imagine how the revenue will be divvied out. It's a convenient and cheap means for the company to be excavating Timo's precious limestone resources. By right, should belongs to the community and the country in Timor-Leste. Have you been there lately? Not recently, but I've been in touch with people locally. Timor is heading for an election this year, so it's going to be pretty interesting with lots of promises and a lot of disruption to real development effort or civil society activities. What about agriculture? That must be really important for a, a small country coming out of all that trouble for many, many years. Is it happening? Well, without subsistence agriculture, the country will be in dire starvation. That's why it is so important to protect the natural resources required by local communities for their subsistence livings. Unfortunately, their politicians wanted a neoliberal style of market-oriented development based on economic growth without really looking at how realistic it is. Is that really that good? At the same time, the Prime Minister of Timor-Leste, Reed Araujo, has signed on to the UN sustainable development goals. It seems to contradict Timor cement projects, and yet no one's kind of looking into that. And what about the environmental groups in Timor itself? Do they have any resources? Not particularly, and I think they're very weak. Just like many developing countries, they are weak, quite fragmented. There's so many issues, they have no idea what to focus on. Their capacity is still very limited. 
So it's really unfair to expect a country like Timor Leste to be able to defend itself against this kind of what I say corporate onslaught. And you've been listening to Lee Tan, environmental consultant for the Asia Pacific area. And um, that was East Timor and Malaysia. Just another mention of the book launch on Thursday, the 30th of March at 6.30, a meal from 6pm. It's at the Multicultural Hub, 506 Elizabeth Street, City. The two authors will be there, Alan Broughton and Elena Garcia. The title of the book is Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed, Small Farmers, Food Security and Big Business. So that's the Multicultural Hub. It's opposite the Victoria Market and 506 Elizabeth Street in the city. That's all I have today. I'm going to finish a wee bit early, but Done By Law will be here very soon. So I'll go out with with a song and I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. Bye for now.